Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Speaking of trans rights, congratulations to Scotland for being progressive enough to pass a self-ID law for gender identity. As I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, while this is a big step forward, it's not the whole journey. And I hope the journey continues. The most important step is always the next one, and if there isn't a beginning, there isn't anything that can follow. Thank you, Scotland, and please keep fighting. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. I want to take a bit of time here at the top of the show to talk a little bit about the past year and what I have planned for the next year. You can skip to five minutes even to get straight to the story. 2022 was the most successful year of the show to date. I hit more downloads than I ever have before. I broke the one-month downloading record as well as the opening week downloads for a show. Even with contracting COVID back in June, I still managed to hit all my episodes and not miss an upload. At the very end of January, that will be five years straight without missing an episode. We just wrapped up the full cast reading of A Christmas Carol, which was my first time casting, organizing, and editing together a bunch of disparate readers into a unified whole. I will not be doing that again. It was far more stress than I wanted or needed. 2023, I intend to do all the normal stuff you've come to know and hopefully love. We'll have something for National Poetry Month. I've got stories already picked out for Pride Month. I need to figure out what I'm doing for the October project because apparently XVI is 16 and not 26, and so the story I had picked out is just going to be too short. In addition to those, I had originally started toying around with the idea of doing a real-time Dracula, where the events that happened on whatever day would be released in an episode that day. I had been thinking about doing that ever since the original reading of Dracula back in 2017, and I was excited about doing it. And then a podcaster and audio drama creator much more famous than I, and deservingly so, came up with the same idea and cast and launched their product, and so, yeah. I don't want to steal a spotlight no matter how little it might be, so that plan got scrapped. Over on the Patreon side, I finished my reading of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, and we're set off on a reading of The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. If you're not a patron but would still like to hear The Moonstone, you can pick up the audiobook off of the Apple Bookstore. It's not on Audible, though. I published my book, my debut short story collection novel of weird fiction, The Colin Malatrap Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. I've sold a bunch of copies of it already, and I'm really proud of it and the stories it contains. Please go and pick yourself up a copy. You won't regret it. Speaking of books, I'm almost done with my new collection of short fiction. I don't have a title for it yet, but I have a lot of good stories written and ready to go. I've got two more I want to write, both of which have been started, but I've been having some trouble with them getting them to work the way I want. I'll crack it eventually, and when they're done, I'll put together a new collection, and hopefully we'll have it available sometime next year. Okay, last thing. This is the big exciting thing. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, is one of my favorite musicals. It's based on a book called The String of Pearls by James Malcolm Reimer. It's 132 chapters long, and I'm going to be presenting that story one chapter every two days throughout 2023 
but with a couple of caveats. First, it will not be on the podcast feed. It's going to go on my YouTube, and that's where it will reside. It will still be completely free to listen to. It will just be on YouTube. Secondly, because that's a very demanding schedule on top of all the other stuff I want to do, if I feel that my mental health is starting to suffer, I will let it slip. I will do my very best to get everything recorded and uploaded, but it may get delayed. I do intend to keep up with it until it's done. Hopefully by 2024, but if I need a mental health break, I will be taking one. And there you go. That's the state of the show. I'm very happy with and proud of everything I've accomplished this year, and I'm excited and energized for 2023, and I hope you will be willing to come with me on this journey into the new year and beyond. Thank you for being here for the best year of the show so far, and I hope you will continue on with me. Thanks. And now, here's the story. Archibald McIntosh, Eldritch Investigator and the Case of the Wailing Lake. When Arkham came in with the news, I was sitting in my red wingback armchair in the study, going over the notes I had prepared about the Winthrop incident. As you know from having read it yourself, it was a sordid affair with many a twist and turn, and I was lucky to escape with my life by the skin of my teeth, and in no small part due to my ingenuity, reasoning, and the large amount of courage with which I was blessed at birth. Footnote. Luck played more than a fair part in this case. If the thing in the cellar hadn't hit the right support at just the right time, we would have been annihilated. The incident I'm about to relate, following so shortly on the heels of the Winthrop incident, may seem a little on the nose, as the Vulgate of the day seems to have it, but that does not mean that it is not true. I assure you, everything I write in my memoirs, which I flatter myself so many of you are kind enough to read, is true, as it happened to me, to the best of my knowledge and memory. Long-time followers of my exploits know how meticulous I am with recounting of the events of my adventurous, sometimes dangerous, but always exciting life. I strive to bring the facts of the matter home with every story, and I never, ever make anything up. Footnote. Imagine my side-eye to you here. And so it was that on a miserably humid night in June, while I was poring over my notes on the Winthrop incident and preparing to write it up for you, my devoted readers, Arkham Ravensthorpe, my valet, manservant, general factotum, footnote, by which I presume he means factotum, and friend, knocked lightly on the door to my office and then stepped inside. He had in his hand an envelope, assumably from that day's post, and offered it to me. It was from Lady Marcibel Willington of the Torbell Willingtons, don't you know, and she had written to ask me for a very special favor. See, some years ago I had come to her seeking information on a particularly troublesome case involving ghouls, and she was kind enough to provide me with the information for which I sought, but only after extracting from me a promise that should she ever find herself in need of my services, I must come at once. Surely, that time had now arrived, and let it not be said that Archibald McIntosh, gentleman adventurer, does not answer the call of a lady as gracious as that of Lady Marcibel Willington. Here, in order to elucidate matters for my clearly devoted readers, I will paste the letter with its accompanying request. Footnote. Mr. McIntosh never pasted the letter in here, and it was subsequently lost during one of the infrequent office cleanings he does— by which I mean, of course, he sweeps everything off his desk into a trash can and starts over. We packed that night, had a dinner of braised pheasant, capers, and potatoes cooked for us to exquisite perfection by Reginald, and set about to pack for the trip to Lady Marcibel Willington's country estate. Early the next morning, we set off, Arkham and I, to assist the charming lady with the problems she was facing. 
When we arrived, we stepped up and rang the bell, but no one answered. We waited, and then I knocked, but still got no response. Finally, we knocked again and called her name. The door opened, and a haggard-looking servant poked his head out. "'Yes?' he asked. "'Good evening, my dear sir,' I said. "'My name is Archibald McIntosh, investigator of the Eldritch, "'and I have come at your lady's request in order to assist her with the door shut in our faces.' I waited, and then knocked again. The door was opened by the same man, but now with an annoyed look on his face. "'The lady is not to be disturbed, not by salesmen, nor churchmen, not by—' "'And here he paused as if to gather up his strength to lace his words with the appropriate amount of derision—tradesmen. "'Well, you can imagine the chagrin with which this particular phrase was greeted. "'My good man,' I said, "'I am no tradesman. I am Archibald Mackintosh. Here's my card.' Please take that to the Lady Marcibel Willington and see how she responds to this, and then, by God, I will have your apology. The man closed the door, and we waited patiently. Is it so hard, Arkham, I asked my loyal manservant, to have to deal with your betters all day? Are they so full of themselves, in your opinion? They are just as full of themselves as you are, sir, Arkham replied graciously. Good old Arkham. Always treats everyone with respect and magnanimity. Footnote. Mr. McIntosh has provided more excitement and adventure in my life than I ever thought I would have, and I am grateful for the experience, but he's not the sharpest pin in the hat. The door opened, and the man, now quiet, gestured us in. We were shown into a sitting room where sat the lady of the house. She was dressed in a most daring, if I may say so, dress of green silk, and she smiled quite prettily as we entered. I took her hand and gently kissed it in greeting. She tittered croquettishly. Footnote, by which he meant coquettishly, but even that word doesn't necessarily fit. Lady Marcibel was at the time in her early sixties, so I don't know that anything she did could be described as coquettish. My Lady Wellington, I said, I came as soon as I received your letter. Being a gentleman, I would never hesitate to come to the aid of such a person as yourself. Oh, please, Archibald, call me Marcibel, and thank you so much for coming— "'It is a matter of some importance upon which I have called you. "'Would you care for some light refreshment?' "'A little light lunch sounds wonderful. "'Thank you so much for the offer.' "'She led us to the back of the house, "'and upon reaching a parlor, "'she stepped over to the wall "'and flipped a little switch embedded in the wainscoting. "'Immediately the room lit up with a bright glow "'from the chandelier that hung in the center of the room. "'Oh, my!' I marveled. "'You have electric lights.' "'Yes,' she said. "'I just had it put in last week. "'It makes things so much more convenient.' You would be absolutely shocked by how much I can get done in a day now. Why, I almost don't notice when the sun goes down. I considered this, thinking perhaps some of my capital could be used to similarly illuminate my own abode. When the sun goes down, it gets quite dark and makes writing like this impossible. Perhaps I would even be able to finally relate the epic saga of the ruins of Cagliostro, and how Arkham and I nearly lost our sanity in the underground crypt of the necromancers. It was so easy, Lady Marcibel went on. Why... All they had to do was just install a few poles and wires outside to carry the electricity, and then pop! It all came on and we had light whenever we wanted it. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for it. It makes it easier to paint, gives me time to do things in the evening and early in the morning. I can make up my face with no concerns. One would think, Lady Marcibel, I said, that with beauty such as yours, no makeup would ever need be applied, nor could it be missed in the light of day or in the dark of night. Lady Marcibel blushed at such attention, and then the light lunch was served and daintily consumed. 
With warming tea in our hands, Lady Marcebel Willington began to tell us of her troubles. It started a few weeks ago, she said. I was walking my dog Vichy down by the southern garden. I had it in my head to go for a little walk there, circle the lake, and come back up. Vichy does so love the lake. We had begun our walk around the lake, and all was proceeding normally, when suddenly from the middle of the lake there rose the most terrible keening wail. Vichy's hair stood right up on end, and she made no effort to confront whatever it was. I looked around, thinking that perhaps a vagrant had gotten onto our land, but I didn't see anyone. I didn't see any of the trees moving, the bushes, not a ripple on the lake. Our land is quite secluded here, you know, and there are very few ways for anyone to get in. Well, after summoning the groundskeeper, and after he conducted a thorough investigation, no vagrants were found. Everything accounted for, and nothing new, either on the walk or in the garden that could account for it. A few months later, I was again walking by the lake, and the same keening wail rose. It was definitely coming from the lake, so I once again summoned the groundskeeper, and he took a look at it. He didn't find anything, or at least claimed not to, but I will tell you, my dear Archibald, that I am not entirely sure he is completely as trustworthy as once he was. He has been hanging around with all sorts of unsavory types lately, and seems to have more regard for their friendship than for keeping his situation here. Archibald? I have a lake that likes to wail at me, and I should appreciate very much if you would be so kind as to discover the source of the wailing and put an end to it. Of course, Lady Marcebel, I should be more than happy to, I exclaimed. I would just like a few more questions answered, if that's all right. Of course, Archibald, whatever you need. Capital, I said. First of all, around what time of day did you hear the wailing? The first time was probably just past one in the afternoon. The second time was shortly after 11 a.m., I remember, because I had taken Vichy out for her walk, because she'd gotten into the flower pots, and I wanted to work off whatever extra energy she had to discourage it. And when the whale arose, you are quite certain it came from the lake? Oh, yes, it was definitely from the lake. What about smells? Did you pick up any strange odors or scents? Anything out of place? You know, now that you mention it, I do recall smelling something quite unpleasant when I was down there. Sort of a wet, damp, earthy smell. I thought perhaps there was some new fertilizer being used and meant to have a word with Barnaby about that, but the whale drove it clean out of my mind. Did anything else happen that you can recall? There was some movement in the water, but that may have been my imagination. It may also have been that Barnaby had just stopped some fish in the lake. He does enjoy his fishing, our Barnaby does. I understand. I enjoy a good spot of fishing myself. I shall definitely proceed with an investigation. Now, if we may get down to the matter of... Payment. I took a step closer and took her hand in mine, my thumb stroking delicately at the back of her palm. I pitched my voice a little lower as I leaned in gently. I'm sure we can come to some sort of arrangement. Arkham, please go and get my memorandum book out of the car so we can properly place everything in writing. Her eyes never left mine as Arkham left the room, leaving us alone. Footnote. Moments like these are few and far between, thankfully. Not many women have the patience to put up with a lover of bluster as great as that of Mr. Mackintosh's. Lady Marcebel Willington, confirmed spinster, is, apparently, one of those. A not inconsiderable amount of time later, Arkham cleared his throat and knocked on the door. I rose from my reclined position on the duvet and bid him enter. He entered quietly, keeping his eyes averted from the Lady Marcebel, and handed me the memorandum book. I made a small note on one of the pages, handed it back. I thanked Lady Marcebel for her kindness in bringing this matter to my attention, and together Arkham and I went out, headed down to the garden path to the lake at the back of the property.
When we arrived, the waters were calm, no sign of any disturbance, Ichthian or otherwise. We waited, but nothing happened. This may be one of those times, Arkham, where we need to camp out in order to procure the necessary result, don't you think? Indubitably, Master, he said with perfect obsequiousness. We waited a bit longer, but still nothing happened. No fish jumping, no water ripples out of nowhere, not even a breath of wind to stir the waters into wavelets. To cut a long story short, after a while we went back to the house, made a report to Lady Marcebel, and outlined our plan of action. Arkham and I would return to our home, pick up some supplies, camping gear and whatnot, and return. We would then camp out by the lake until something revealed itself, and from there we would get to the bottom of the mystery. Thus planned, we returned home, got our camping gear and whatnot, and returned to the lake. Below is a short memorandum of the equipment we brought with us and its planned usage. Footnote. Again, Mr. McIntosh has failed utterly to insert the list of items we brought with us from the house. To the best of my memory, it was a tent, two sleeping bags, some wood for a fire, some tinder to start the fire, three pistols, two rifles, two swords, an assortment of knives, the pendant we retrieved from the Temple of Caligo, some cigarettes, and a fifth of brandy. Our first night was spent on the shores of the lake, sitting by a crackling fire, listening to the hum of the electrical lines overhead, conversing quietly as we waited for whatever was going to happen to happen. Once we bedded down that first night, the night passed uneventfully, and we woke in the morning to the sound of birdsong and a light wind ruffling the leaves. Footnote. Mr. McIntosh has a tendency to lay out for our perusal the nuance of everything that happens during the course of an investigation. While this is sometimes of value, this particular day was not. I have taken the liberty of editing out most of the tedium of a day in his life. I have done this more often than you, dear reader, may have realized, and certainly more than he does, since he never reads his accounts again once he's done writing the first draft. The second day we awoke not to the sounds of birdsong and leaf rustling, but to a strange unearthly wailing that seemed to arise from the lake and settle over the land like a blanket of mold and nitre. I sprang from the tent, pistol in my hand, and looked out over the lake. In the center of it there seemed to be some bubbles coming up. The wailing rose and fell, sometimes louder, sometimes closer. But the strange thing is that the two were not mutual. Sometimes it was closer but quieter, and sometimes it was farther away but louder. The bubbling of the water always stayed near the center, though. I held my pistol at the ready, waiting for anything to come up out of the water. This was very much like the time I faced down that herd of slimy half-human fishmen who rose from the Segovia aqueduct of Spain and tried to take over the city. By God, we showed them that day. Footnote. By we, he means the city militia. They did the heavy lifting. Mr. McIntosh was near the back of the formation and maybe, maybe, fired a single shot during the fracas. The wailing rose in pitch, and then suddenly a second sound joined it. It was preceded by a rippling in the water that started from the forested area of land on the far side of the lake, and we watched the ripples extend across, rolling toward us. The water lapped up on the edges, and then suddenly I heard a low rumble, deep and bassy, plunging into my eardrums and squeezing my brain. I had a terrible vision of something large and squamous, slimy and detestable making that noise, and how it would come out of the forest and slide greasily into the lake, and no matter how I tried to clear it from my mind, the vision wouldn't leave. I watched helplessly, and my gun slowly lowered as the rumbling went on. The wailing grew in counterpoint to it, and the water danced and rippled and splashed and bubbled. Then, because apparently that just wasn't enough for any human mind to handle, 
A whole chorus of wailing noises rose up from somewhere. I'm not sure if they were coming from the lake or from the forest or from behind us, beneath us, above us. It was all around. A strange, unearthly chorus of demoniacal cacophony such that I never encountered before and hope never to encounter ever again. I looked left, right, up, down, all around, but still saw nothing. And still the wailing pierced my eyes, and the rumble pierced my ears, and the chorus of high, low-pitched cries shriveled my soul. I have no idea how Arkham, with his gentle disposition and incurious mind, handled it. Footnote. With grace and aplomb, Mr. McIntosh. With grace and aplomb. Finally, after an interminable time, the chorus of cries died down and then the rumble. There was still a wailing, crying sound coming from the lake, and still as the grave, we waited to see if anything would rise up so that we could bring this nightmare to an end. Footnote. Here, I believe, Mr. McIntosh stopped writing for the night. It is entirely within the realm of possibility that when he resumed writing, he paid no heed at all to where he had stopped, and instead went on with the narrative from the next thing he wanted to write about, hence the sudden jump. The creature came at us in the night. Arkham and I were both asleep when we heard a wet padding sound, as if some sort of creature was skulking around with the most damp locomotive ability that could be imagined. I, of course, woke immediately and had a pistol in my hand before Arkham even opened his eyes. Footnote. A good factotum, and I fancy myself a magnificent factotum, will always be up before his master, no matter the circumstance. I heard him stirring and was at full alert with a pistol in my hand before he even sat up. We waited, silent, almost without breathing, as we listened to the thing slosh and flop around our campsite. Finally, heard a slight, very slight scratching at the tent, and I immediately fired off a shot. There was a loud, keening noise that knifed right through my eyes and sliced my brain, and then it was damply and squishily running away. We hurriedly opened the tent flap and gave chase. The moon was nearly full, but the trees were dense and we soon lost sight of it. We could still hear its keening, high-pitched wail, and then a splash back by the lake. We turned and headed back in that direction. The moonlight, reflecting on the water, showed us a wake as of something swimming away very quickly just under the surface. I took aim and fired another shot. The water splashed, but nothing else happened. I fired again near the front of the wake. The water splashed again and something surfaced. It was large and pale and not at all human. It looked much like many eldritch things I have encountered before, and which you can read about in my collection of adventures entitled Archibald Mackintosh, Eldritch Adventurer, Explorer of Ruins, Lover of Women, The Cases That Defined His Life. Now on sale in all reputable bookstores, only £15.99. Footnote. Complete with my masterful editing and annotations. You're welcome. The thing thrashed in the water, multiple appendages splashing and causing a general ruckus. The thing was obviously in pain, so I took aim and pulled the trigger again, intending to mercifully put it out of its misery. The shot went slightly wide and splashed harmlessly in the water. Then the thing turned and its head appeared. I mean, there was no head, and then a head rose out of the gelatinous mass of its yeasty body, turned its glowing eyes on us. Its appendages all started working together, and it came right for us. We took a step back and brought our guns to bear. We waited until the thing was out of the water, in the open space between the edge of the lake and the tree line, and then Arkham and I both opened fire at once. I flatter myself that all my shots hit, and maybe some of Arkham's too, though he had never been as good a shot as I, and the thing collapsed to the ground, twitching and shivering, still trying to crawl toward us.
Footnote. I spent fifteen years in the military before retiring to the quiet life, or so I thought at the time, of a butler to a gentleman. I have seen my fair share of combat. I shall leave it to the reader to decide who hit and who missed. I stepped up to the pathetic thing, put my gun against its head, and fired. It jumped, twitched once, then went still. The thing was maybe ten feet long, with multiple appendages, though some of those appeared to be shrinking back into its body as if being reabsorbed. We watched as it flowed together into a shapeless mass, a blob of mortal remains with a few tentacle-like appendages sticking out. I tapped it once with my foot. It didn't move. I turned to look at Arkham, who was still training his gun on the thing. Well, I said, it would appear we can go back and inform the Lady Marcibel that... Arkham's eyes suddenly went wide and his gun rose from the thing on the ground to something behind me. I turned, knowing exactly what I would see. The thing we had killed, the blobby mass of jelly that put up such a fight in the face of at least ten bullets, that had been a child. For now, rising from the lake was a squamish shape, a mass of feelers and warts and blotches and tentacles all thrashing around. An opening appeared at the top, slid down the side toward us, and then the most piercing, screaming wail rent the night, sending birds flying out of their trees and doubtless stampedes of wildlife away from the area. It was the thing's mother, and it was angry. I stood, looking at it, and thinking that it was much bigger than ought to reasonably fit inside a lake but it apparently did, as it was now coming out of it and directly toward us. I may have screamed. I don't remember. I know Arkham certainly did. Footnote. I'm not proud of it, but it's the truth. And he definitely did also. And together we both fired our guns until they were empty. The thing didn't even seem to feel it. It continued its slow, lumbering advance. It was implacable, unstoppable, a divine force of retribution that no man, not even I, have ever encountered before. I must admit that at the time I had absolutely no idea how I would be able to stop it. We ran back to our tents, grabbed the high-powered rifles, and stood at guard. We shouldered the stocks, took aim, and fired almost simultaneously. The reports of the explosions were very loud, and they echoed all around. We saw the bullets strike home. They hit the beast, the flesh rippled in gelatinous waves, but otherwise no ill effect could be seen. Water cascaded down its moist, flabby skin, glimmering in the moonlight. That is an image that shall forever be burned into my brain. I see it sometimes in my dreams. Seeing that the rifles had no effect, we stepped back, reassessing. We didn't have much more that we could use in order to fight it, and it was coming— knocking over trees, wailing and crying, filled with the fury of a woman scorned. We turned and ran, barely avoiding trees, thin branches, scratching and grabbing at our arms and legs as we fled. In the full moonlight, I could just barely make out the trees as we ran, the thing crashing and wailing behind us, coming ever closer and ever closer. It was moving faster than we were, and the thought occurred to me that this was probably the end. Then I passed a tree that was strangely smooth and had no branches or twigs coming off of it at all. My mind registered it as I ran, but nothing caught up in my brain until several seconds later, when we were several yards past, and then it clicked. The electrical wires. I stopped and turned. Arkham, just behind me, stopped also, tried to grab at my arm to pull me along. Good old Arkham, even concerned with my safety to the end. Footnote. 
I was attempting to get his attention so I could point out the electrical wires which I had seen as we were running from the thing. I stopped and waited. If this worked, we lived. If it didn't, we died. That was what Arkham didn't realize. Footnote. <sighs> we couldn't outrun the thing. This was our only chance. It came, wailing and screaming, crashing through the trees. Just as I judged it had reached the place where the electrical wire pole was, there was a sudden flash and blue arcs of light shot out, enveloping the thing. It went silent, the sudden lack of sound clanging like a gong in my ears, and then it burst into flames. First one spot, then another, then a third, on and on, until it was a giant burning blob of... I don't even know what. It thrashed and screamed as it smoked and burned. The smell was incredible, pungent and earthy and moldy and foul and, worst of all, sweet. Trees nearby caught fire as it crashed around, and then with one final convulsion, it crashed to the ground and was still. Arkham and I stood there, breathless, watching the firelight illuminating the land around. Finally, we turned back to Lady Marcebell's house to call for the fire department. Footnote. This is where Mr. McIntosh finished the story, and fair enough. There isn't much more to tell, but there is one last thing I would like to draw your attention to. We had stopped the thing in the lake, whatever it was, than making the wailing noise. It would certainly not be bothering Lady Marcebell ever again. But, I trust you recall, there had been a second noise. A deep rumbling that came from the forested area beyond the lake. Something large and calling in response to the wailing thing in the lake. What of it? 